Well, dear congregation, I would ask you now to please direct your very prayerful attention to those words that I read to you in your hearing there in 2 Kings and the 20th chapter. I suppose if we could put a title over this chapter, there are a number that have been suggested. May I suggest this for our help this morning? Falling in pride after overcoming. We could say that this is a a rightful title and perhaps maybe you've not seen it, but we will see it, I trust, this morning. Falling in pride after overcoming. This is a tendency that we all have to fall in pride, don't we? The scriptures say, if any man thinketh he stand, take heed, lest he fall. You remember in the last chapter in 2 Kings chapter 19, this wonderful king, we say we his wonderful, wonderful compared to so many of the other kings that have gone before, this faithful king, Hezekiah, stood firm, didn't he, against the enemies, Sennacherib and Rabshakeh, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, that ungodly king who was blustering and threatening Judah in the south to destroy them. They had already overthrown Israel in the north, hadn't they? And Israel was led captivity into Assyria, and they brought foreigners in the land. Could I just ask that curtain closed just a little bit? Um, And so this is the case. There is great threatening. And there was, and God sent, should we say, an angel, and the angel of the Lord passed over and completely destroyed 185,000 Assyrian men in one night. And there were some of the army of Assyria that survived with Sennacherib, and they went back, they returned. Remember how God said they would hear a rumor, and there was a rumor. And then there was this death that came over all the, well, not all, but probably a large majority of the Assyrian army. And then later, the king of Assyria was slain in his own temple, as it were, this false god, where we saw the Lord's deliverance. And here we need to just put things into context because... What takes place here, as we'll see now in chapter 20, actually takes place in the midst of this scene. And that's not easy to see at first, but I trust that I'll be able to show you that this morning. But we do see the Lord's deliverance there, don't we, of Judah over this ungodly nation, Assyria, who, as I said, overthrew Israel in the north. But Judah now, much smaller and being threatened, And there we see the angel of the Lord passing over and bringing deliverance to Hezekiah and the people. And uh, we want to see, first of all, here, I want you to see that Hezekiah is sick during this time. If you notice in verse 1, it says, In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. Now, evidently, this, as we shall see this morning, was during the days here of this Assyrian encampment uh, around about Jerusalem uh, and Judah itself. 
If you turn and just look at chapter 18, verse 2, 2 Kings 18, verse 2, we're just going to do a little bit of maths here, and I want you to see from this chapter that this sickness of Hezekiah actually takes place during this siege. 2 Kings 18, 2, we read, 20 and 5 years old was he, that's Hezekiah, when he began to reign. And he reigned 20 and 9 years in Jerusalem. So 29 years he reigned in Jerusalem. And if you come to this chapter here, if you just look at this chapter, chapter 20 and verse 13, it says, now in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, did Sennacherib, king of Assyria, come up against all the fenced cities of Judah and took them. So in this 14th year of the 29 years that he actually reigns, because it says there we read in 2 Kings 18.2 that he reigned 29 years. So in the 14th year of those 29 years, and if you look at verse 13, Sennacherib rose up. He rises up against all the fenced cities of Judah. So not just Jerusalem, but all the fenced cities, and took them. So there is this besieging. And so Sennacherib is still alive during this time. This is the time of the siege and the great devastation of these 185,000 men haven't yet taken place. And if you come down to verse 6 here of 2 Kings 20, this is confirmed. Notice what the Lord says. And I will add unto thy days, the Lord is saying, turn again, look, I'll read from verse 5, turn again and tell Hezekiah, this is a word coming from Isaiah, turn again and tell Hezekiah, the captain of my people, thus saith the Lord, the God of David thy father, I've heard thy prayer, I've seen thy tears, behold, I will heal thee. So he's got a sickness unto death, but the Lord says here, verse 6, I will add unto thy days 15 years. Now notice, and I will deliver thee and this city, that's Jerusalem, out of the hand of the king of Assyria. So Sennacherib is still alive. The threat is still there. Do you see that? So this is important. This is taking place. This sickness is taking place whilst Sennacherib is still alive. And then soon the 185,000 of the Assyrian army are going to be slain. We saw that in the last chapter. What is happening here is that the Holy Spirit of God is giving us a glimpse as to the personal affairs and the things taking place in Hezekiah's life. And we know that the scriptures say, don't they, in Romans 15, whatsoever things are written aforetime, written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. And there are lessons here, my friends, for us today, to glean from God's Word. Because I said, we all have this tendency to pride and to falling. And Hezekiah, we would never think, here is a man that could fall. But the Scriptures tell us to take heed to ourselves. So the Lord is giving us here an inside view as to the affairs of his life. Now, notice, first of all, in verse 1, what we have here is God's call to Hezekiah to prepare himself to meet his God. We're told here 
In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death, and the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, came to him and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. In other words, here's an urgent word. Hezekiah, you have this sickness. He had this boil upon him. And it was evidently healed. But here, if you notice, Hezekiah is told to put his house in order. Why? Because he is going to meet with death. He's going to meet with death. And it's true, he did meet with death. But it appears here now it's rather imminent. Now, if you turn to Isaiah 38, we have his prayer recorded there for us. Isaiah 38, verse 9. Isaiah, as we've already read here, is the prophet on the scene, the son of Amos. And we read in verse 9, the writing of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, when he had been sick and was recovered of his sickness. And here's the prayer. I said in the cutting off of my days, I shall go to the gates of the grave. I am deprived of the residue of my years. I said, I shall not see the Lord, even the Lord in the land of the living. I shall behold man no more with the inhabitants of the world. Mine age is departed and is removed from me as a shepherd's tent. I have cut off like a weaver my life. He will cut me off with pining sickness from day even to night. Wilt thou make an end of me? I reckon till morning that as a lion, so will he break all my bones. From day even to night will thou make an end of me, and so on. We see here how the Lord has mercy upon him. This is the prayer. You can read it later on in more detail for yourself. So the prophet comes to him and says, prepare for your end. Get your house in order. Put things right. Now the body is going to die. When we die, what happens? The body goes to the grave. And the soul goes to be with the Lord. The Apostle Paul says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. We do not believe in what some would teach soul sleep. Paul says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. There's a separation at death. And the soul goes to be with God. If you notice Ecclesiastes 12, 7, it says there, then shall the dust return to the earth. As it was, and the Spirit shall return unto God who gave it. So at death, there's a separation with body and spirit or soul, as terms are used synonymously in Scripture. And then what after that? Well, you either go to be with the Lord or you go to be reserved to a place of judgment for that final day. We're told, aren't we, in Romans 14.10, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Even Christians, well, they will receive a reward for faithfulness. We thank God we'll not be judged for our sin, but we will receive a reward for faithfulness. Commendation, but for the lost, they will stand with us. 
We read in Revelation, the books will be opened up and there will be every man that has ever lived. Everybody here will be gathered on that day. Souls will be gathered before the throne of Almighty God. And my friend, let me say, we must prepare to meet the Lord. It may be much sooner than you think. Everyone is going to meet the Lord. The scriptures say it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. Everybody here. There's going to be nobody that is here that is not going to be there on that day, meeting the Lord. And let me say this, we are always to be prepared to meet the Lord at any moment, because we just do not know. Look at Hezekiah. He never would have thought it. Prepare to meet thy God. And we're told here, thou shalt die and not live. Now that was true. He did eventually die. Life was extended to him, however. But you know, we learned some lessons on this this morning, but let's come back to the subject. Let me ask the question, are you able, Christian, to say, for now I am ready to depart? Can you say with Paul, my departure is at hand? I don't know when it is, but I know it is at hand. And soon I'm going to meet the Lord. Can you say with Paul, I have fought the good fight? Can you say that? I finished my course, or I'm finishing it. You know, we have many things we plan to do. But what about the Lord's business? The Lord's business is the most important business of all, isn't it? And the time to serve him is now. In this world, the time to pray. There's no prayers in heaven. When you're in heaven, it's complete. We'll see God face to face. Time to pray is now. Time to read the word of God is now. Time to witness is now. So we see here a need for preparation. And this applies to all, not just Hezekiah. But here's something very pressing. He's got poor health, this boil upon him. And he's told, as far as this condition is, it's a serious condition. And it's unto death. But notice, secondly, an unstated condition of his death. It's unstated. Notice in verse 1b, And the prophet Isaiah the son of Amos came to him and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. But it's implied in the text here, as we'll see in the narrative, and we know he does die, but he's not actually told when he will die. Is he? He's not told that here. He's just told he's going to die. It, it's looking imminent. And the fact that Hezekiah died, we know it. But here it seems like it's imminent. So there's an implied, unstated condition to this death. And uh, we're all going to die at some point. But let me just show you this unstated condition of sometimes what we see in Scripture to be an imminent threat if certain things aren't changed. And we have it in the case of Abimelech and Abraham. You remember when Abraham lied about his wife? If you just turn to Genesis 20, and you notice the verse 1 there. It says, Genesis 20, verse 1, And Abraham journeyed, and from thence towards south country, and dwelled between Kadesh and Shur, and sojourned in Gerar, 
And Abraham said of Sarah, that was his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech king of Gerar sent and took Sarah. Now this posed a serious problem. Notice verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, thou art but a dead man. In other words, if he continued with this woman, he would be a dead man. But he is pronounced here, but thou art a dead man. For the woman which thou hast taken, for she is a man's wife. And then we read, but Abimelech had not come near her, and so on. You notice in verse 7, come down to verse 7 there, Genesis 20. Now therefore, restore the man his wife, for he is a prophet, and he shall pray for thee, and thou shalt live. Thou art dead, but thou shalt live. Now there are three conditions needed for that to be met. First of all, restore Sarah. What does he say? Behold, thou art a dead man. But he says, first of all, restore the man his wife. That's the first thing you've got to do. If you don't want to be a dead man, restore Abraham his wife. Secondly, ask Ask who? Abraham. Because it says, he is a prophet. And then thirdly, I will hear. These conditions are met. If they are met, thou shalt live. And then we have another example. We know this account very well. We know of Jonah. You remember how Jonah was sent to preach to the city of Nineveh? Forty days. And the city will be destroyed, be overthrown. And Jonah went after having been disobedient in the first case, and then he goes after the Lord sends him again, and he preaches to the city in Nineveh, and the people repent. The king, in fact, calls all the men to strip themselves of their clothing and to clothe themselves in sackcloth and ashes and repent, turn from their sin. Who knows what the Lord will do? Jonah 3, 4. And Jonah began to enter the city, and he, he preached this, 40 days and never shall be overthrown. Well, that was what God had determined to do. But of course, the king repented. And you notice verse 9, the king says, Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger and so on? And we read, God repented. And now the word there, repent, is not the same as us repenting. It means God turned the way in which he was going to deal with these people because there was a turning in the people. There was a, a confession. There was a, not only a confession, but there was a turning away from the sin. So in this sense, the condition is met. And it's not as if somehow God doesn't know the future. Now, all of this produces a prayer, no doubt, in Hezekiah, doesn't it? to seek the Lord, to turn his face to the wall, and to weep sore. My friend, God has determined all things. And God knows exactly that all of his sheep will repent, but they are kept by the threatenings. It's like the Lord says to his disciples. You know, if your right eye causes you to sin, you've got to deal with it. If you don't deal with that 
white-eyed darling sin, you'll burn in hell. Of course, salvation is not by works, but the Christian realizes, I must work out what is in me. Salvation is in me. I can and will, by the Spirit of God, put to death the deeds of the body, and Paul says, I will live. Christian doesn't sit back and do nothing. He acts upon the word. And prayer is sought here. And the Lord hears prayer. Of course, God has planned everything. And God knew Isaiah would pray. And if you read Isaiah's prayer there as we, we read it, it's so sincere. He said, thou hast hid my sins behind thy back. There was a true confession. And God forgave him of his sin. You have to read the whole prayer. Now, God never changes his mind. In fact, we're told in Job 23, 13, who can turn him? He is of one mind, says Job. That's God. Who can turn him? And what his soul desireth, even that he doeth. And God used this sickness to work that repentance and that seeking in this man's life. So, same, even God put fear, didn't he? In Abimelech, God put fear in the king of Nineveh's heart and the people. So God works through the means, doesn't he? And God here again is working through the means. It's not, again, as I say, that God doesn't know the future. God has determined all things, my friend, but he employs those secondary means, whether it's poor health or whatever, or other people. Even when God sent Nathan the prophet to David, let me say, even in those secondary means, God is always the primary means by which something is effected. The cause and the effect is of God. This is what we read in Isaiah 46. God says, I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, he says, that's everything. He says, I, I, I have ordained the entire future of this cosmos, of this world. Nothing happens apart from his determination. Paul says in Ephesians 1, he works all things, verse 11, after the counsel of his own will. And then we read, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. And then the Lord says, calling a ravenous bird from the east. How did Elijah eat? My birds. And then he says, the man that executeth my counsel from a far country. Think of Cyrus, an ungodly king who God used. My servant. He's going to do my bidding, God says. The heart of every king, even the king of England, is in the hand of the Lord. And he can turn a man however he will. There's nothing beyond his power. He uses secondary means, but he is always the primary means, even if a secondary cause coming into effect. 
And thirdly, I want to think this morning about a misunderstood sorrow. Look at verse 2 and 3. Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed unto the Lord, saying, I beseech thee, O Lord, remember now how I have walked before thee in truth with a perfect heart and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. Some have suggested here that Hezekiah is holding on too much of the things of this life. Now, it's not sinful to, I suppose, miss loved ones if you'd be departed. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us, doesn't he? Hezekiah had some legitimate concerns and reasons to want to stay. Think of all that is taking place, all the reforms that he brought about thus far, even in Judah. Remember the, the priestly reforms, the reforms in the nation, and so on. He'd done so many good things, and he wants to see it continue. And some have criticized Hezekiah, saying, well, he's holding on too much to this world. Well, that, if you take that position, is to be com- completely misunderstand the picture. And there are several things we need to consider here. Things taking place at this particular time. Firstly, as I said, there can be, even with us as Christians, a natural sorrow to grieve the loss of our family that we must part with, particularly those who are unsaved. We long that the Lord might have mercy. We long to see if the Lord might save our children, or maybe even there'll be change in our family. Hezekiah here, he's not engaging in self-pity. I invite you to even go back there to Isaiah 38, how he prayed, he acknowledged, he confessed his sin. Uh, Some even say that he is self-righteous, even by what he says here. But we need to properly understand what he's saying. If you turn to 1 Kings 8, here's a promise given to David. And what Hezekiah is doing here, he is laying hold of this promise that God made to David, the king, how he had promised that would, would be on this godly line. Now, we're not thinking here primarily of Israel, but we're thinking here of Judah, this godly line by which the Messiah would come and sit on David's throne eventually. Verse 25, 1 Kings eight, twenty-five. Therefore now, O Lord God of Israel, keep with thy servant David my father, that thou promised him, and here concerning, sorry, Solomon. There shall not fail thee a man in my sight to sit on the throne of Israel, so that thy children take heed to their way, that they walk before me as thou hast walked before me. Now, as we'll see this morning, the second thing that needs to be taken into consideration, we've even read here of that there will be children that will come from the issue of Hezekiah. And it seems quite clear, as we'll see, that he doesn't have any children at the moment. Uh, In fact, as we'll see, Manasseh is not even born. So how is this kingdom going to continue? What about God's promise? What about the promise of the Savior to come? The problem right now is there is no successor 
to the throne of Hezekiah. So how is the Savior going to come into the world? Because Manasseh, his son, was not yet born. Let's just do a little bit of maths here. Look at 2 Kings 20, verse 21. It says at the end, And Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and Manasseh, his son, reigned in his stead. Now, it begins, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. And this tells us, we know that Hezekiah here, this healing takes place 15 years. He's given 15 years. So Manasseh is not born until three years after this healing. And Manasseh would have been the oldest. There's nobody else before him. The Lord even tells us in this chapter how there will be issue from him. Look at verse 18. And of thy sons that shall issue from thee, which thou shalt beget. It's a wonderful promise. This is after the healing and after the turning back of the, the dial. Shall they take away? You're going to have sons. They haven't issued from you yet. And Manasseh's not yet born. So you can see the burden of Hezekiah. He's not engaged here in self-pity or self-righteousness, but he is sought to walk in the day in the way of David. So it follows, does it not, that Manasseh was not born for three years after this, when God turned the sundial back. And the sun was, as we'll see even from Isaiah, the sun was turned back. Not just the dial, but Isaiah actually tells us the sun was turned back. And so another thing is that there are no children mentioned thus far. And it certainly appears that Manasseh would have been, at the moment, well, he's not even born. There's no heir to the throne. And it would always ordinarily be the oldest that would take the throne. Here's another reason may, he may be longing to stay. The ongoing work of reform. And this should surely be the burden of every Christian, shouldn't it? We heard it in the prayer meeting, the state of the churches and the apostate church should be a, bur a burden. It's a godly concern, isn't it? And we should not just be lamenting it, but seeking to be part of that good example. And he was a good example. Remember what Paul said in Philippians 1.22, But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet, what shall I choose? I what not? He said, I don't know. For I am in a strait betwixt the two. He says, I'm finding this difficult. Having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. And then Paul says this to the Philippian church. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. Paul could see the benefit in staying in his heart was burdened, no doubt, for the churches. So Hezekiah is a godly concern. But then, of course, there's this, we've seen already, there's this crisis, isn't there, at the moment with Assyria. These things are happening during this besiegement. We're told here, even the Lord says, that he will deal with this wicked king. He will remove 
Sennacherib. It's a great burden, so you can see. But furthermore, I think there's a just as important thing. It must have been on his heart. The advancement of the promise of Christ. Surely a king is needed here. The line of David must continue. Christ, the coming of the Savior. It's interesting if you, you turn to Matthew chapter 1, we have the birth line of the Lord Jesus there. And look at verse 10 and it says, And Ezekiel, and that's by the way Aramaic for Hezekiah, begat Manasseh. That's Manasseh. And Manasseh begat Ammon, Ammon begat Josias, and Josias begat Jeconus. And you go down through the list, you come all the way to the verse 15 and 16. Look at verse 15. And Eliud begat Eleazar, and Eleazar begat Mathan, and Mathan begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary. So we have this line, you can see it yourself how the Savior will come through Hezekiah and even Manasseh. And you think, Manasseh? A wicked king. And yet God, my friend, can draw a straight line through crooked and wicked people. And he fulfills his purpose. Now thirdly, I want us to notice the Lord hears the prayer of Hezekiah. Isaiah comes and we read, and it came to pass, verse 4, before Isaiah was gone out to the middle court, that the word of the Lord came to him. That's to Isaiah, saying, turn again and tell Hezekiah, the captain of my people, thus saith the Lord, the God of David thy father, I have heard thy prayer, I have seen thy tears. Behold, I will heal thee, and on the third day thou shalt go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add unto thy days fifteen years, and I will deliver thee and the city out of the hand of the king of Assyria. See, so the, the, the threat is it's all in the midst of this siege. And notice, and for David's sake. So it's bringing us back to the covenant promise, my friends. God had promised David that he would put one on his throne. This is the, the central promise. And so we have it here. The Lord heard the prayer of Hezekiah. And my friend, the Lord does hear prayer. And he says, and I will defend the city. And it's true. God has a spiritual Jerusalem. And uh, these are his people. We read in Revelation that the Jerusalem from above comes down as a bride adorned for a husband. Those are God's people. Paul says, the Jerusalem above, which is the mother of us all. When we die, our spirits go to that Jerusalem which is above, and it shall come down, and God will make a new heavens and a new earth. This is the blessed promise. And so the Lord promises here this physical deliverance of Jerusalem to bring in the Savior, that he might go into Jerusalem and suffer and die for his people. Now notice, seventhly, the Lord appoints the means of personal deliverance. We have it in verse 7. And Isaiah said, take a lump of figs. And they took it and laid it on the boil, and he recovered. It was only a lump of figs. No, he said, 
any lump a fix. Doesn't matter where you get it. The lesson is this. The power is not in the figs. The power is in the word of God. God says, this is the means I will use, and that's it, finished. Any lump, go and get it from wherever you will. It'll work, because I've said it. That's the lesson. That's what God is conveying to us, friends. Now, fourthly, notice Hezekiah asks for a sign. Verse 8. And Hezekiah said unto a sign that this is actually going to take place. And Hezekiah said unto Isaiah, What shall be the sign that the Lord will heal me, and that I shall go up into the house of the Lord the third day? He didn't want to defile it, and he wanted assurance. Now, many rail at Hezekiah here and say, This is wrong. The Bible says, and they, they often quote the Lord Jesus, they say, And even an adulterous generation seeketh out for a sign. Well, what is the difference between Hezekiah asking and the religious hypocrites in our Lord Jesus Christ's day? There's a big difference. And there are people maybe even sat here. I want a sign. I want a sign that the Lord is, that the Lord is. There's a huge difference. Hezekiah was asking for a sign to strengthen himself. His wavering heart. He knew his sin. And it was not wrong to ask for a sign. The Lord gave it to him. Now there are some people, the wicked and the adulterous generation, and that's every generation we could say, particularly in the days of the Lord Jesus, they asked for a sign not because they needed proof, but because they didn't want to believe his word. And there are many people like that. Give me a sign that the Bible's true. Give me, show me, show me. You can be there all day. They'll not give you the... They don't want a real sign. They just don't want to obey. They don't want to submit to God. And there are many people like that. Show me more. More evidence. When you have faith, my friend, you see what you are. And you see your unworthiness to receive. And you may be weak, and it's not wrong to ask the Lord to give you more faith, to increase your understanding. You see, Hezekiah was not hostile, whereas the religious leaders in Christ, they were hostile to him. The more signs he gave, the more hostile they became. There's a big difference. When the Jews demanded a sign... It was not a cry for help. No. But it was seeking to trip him up and to excuse themselves in their sin. And, and that's why a lot of people today ask for signs. They want to excuse their sin. If a sign's not given them, well, I'll just carry on with my sin. Is that all right? It's not all right. Well, a sign is promised and it's given. Isaiah 9, uh, sorry, verse 9, and Isaiah said, This sign thou shalt have of the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing that he hath spoken. Now the question is asked, Hezekiah, notice, Isaiah asked the question, Shall the shadow go forward 10 degrees, 
or back 10 degrees? Do you want us to go forward or back? Well, he answers backward because he understands time. He wants to be given more time. 10 degrees, verse 10. And Hezekiah answered, it is a light thing for the shadow to go down 10 degrees. In other words, you know, if God, if God would reduce my days, that's a light thing. In a sense, he could take me now. I don't deserve anything. Really, do I? Do you? But he said, but let the shadow return back with 10 degrees. Well, it went back. And Isaiah the prophet cried unto the Lord, and he brought the shadow 10 degrees backward, by which it had gone down in the dial of Ahaz. In other words, Ahaz's days were reduced. Remember? It went backward. It went forward. Gone down the dial. So that's where we get the down the dial is forward. But backward is he gives more time. Again, as I said, the sun changed. Look at Isaiah 38, verse 8. Same parallel passage. Behold, I will bring again the shadow of the degrees which has gone down in the sundial of Ahaz, 10 degrees backward. So the sun returned 10 degrees. The sun returned 10 degrees. How does God do this? I mean, people didn't live 15 more years along with Hezekiah. Look, we can't explain how God does things, but he does them. The sun returned 10 degrees. His time was extended. Was it, it was a sign. The sun turned, but he was given time. We can't explain these things. They're beyond us. Can we explain how God created the universe? We can't. Can we explain how the sun returned 10 degrees on the dark? We can't. But it took place. Don't try to figure it out. You see, even in the Lord Jesus Christ day, they were asking for signs. There was a great sign that day he died. The sun was blackened, was covered. That should have been the greatest sign. And he cried, Why hast thou forsaken me? The great sign, and then the sign of the grave, the empty tomb. Now God is able to show his power by the sign, by the sun turning back. It's amazing. Well, no sooner... The rest, as I said, the trouble. If any man thinketh he stand, take heed, lest he fall. Have a look with me. As you notice what happens. Look at verse 12. And let me just say this as we come to make some concluding remarks as we look at the rest of this passage. Child of God, Satan is a real enemy. And he knows our weakness, doesn't he? We all have weaknesses. If he can't get the child of God to fall with direct threats, Sennacherib, 
Rabshakeh, Assyria, you try something else. And often it's straight to the heart. And one of the things is pride. You notice in verse 12, at that time, Barodak Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present unto Hezekiah. For he had heard that Hezekiah had been sick. Now here these emissaries, they, they eventually come to Hezekiah. And bear in mind, there is a Syria that is posing threat upon Babylon and upon all these nations. And they see in Judah an ally. They see that there's hope and they send a letter to Hezekiah. He's ill and then emissaries are sent. Presence ascent, an allegiance has tried to be formed here. And Hezekiah is impressed with all of this attention. And it begins to be his demise. If you look at verse 13, and Hezekiah hearkened unto them and showed them all the house of his precious things, silver and the gold and the spices and the precious ointment of the house of his arm and all that was found in his treasures. And there was nothing in his house nor in his dominion that Hezekiah showed them not. You remember Isaiah also comes and says, what did you show them? He said, everything. What is he doing here? He gives them a complete tour of all that he had acquired. There was a time, remember, when he took the things of the treasury of the Lord's house and gave them to the king of Assyria. Then he stopped. There was a time when he didn't have much, but since there's been reform and there has been a change in Judah, God has blessed the land, God has blessed Hezekiah, and he has great abundance. And he shows these Babylonian ambassadors and emissaries, and he says, look, and it seems that there's no glory to God. He's showing off all of these things. And he's showing really how the Lord had made him famous and how God has brought blessing. And no doubt he is flattered by the attention. And we have this confirmed to us in Second Chronicles 32. How his heart was lifted up in pride. That's what it says. 2 Chronicles 32, look there, verse 24. In those days Hezekiah was sick to the death, and prayed unto the Lord, and he spake unto him, and he gave him a sign. But notice this, this is striking, friends. But Hezekiah rendered not again according to the benefit done unto him. He didn't render to God for the benefit for all of these things, Notice, for, here's the reason, his heart was lifted up. He didn't render to God. Therefore, was wrath upon him and upon Judah and Jerusalem. He showed it all off, but he didn't render because it says his heart was lifted up. Pride. And my friend, what God sometimes do is that which we take pride in 
God will take away. And he'll use it to sting us so that we place no confidence in those things and so that we only glory in him. Hezekiah was glorying here, really in himself. It says he did not render to God. He did not render again unto God, for his heart was lifted up in pride. You have to be so careful. Even when we do good, be very careful. The Pharisees, when they prayed, they loved to pray in public. But my friend, what about private prayer? They loved to ash in their faces and make themselves look sick. And yet they hadn't fasted. They loved to give so publicly. If a man glory, let him glory only in God. And not in himself. Pride, my friends, is a terrible thing. Hadn't any sons here. But when he looked at Manasseh, God said, I'm going to take him away. When he looked at his other sons, I'm going to take them away. And by the way, all of these treasures that you have, I'm going to give to these ambassadors that have come to see you and that have flattered you. It's all going to be gone. Why? Because the Lord loves Hezekiah. He takes away what is not good for us. He takes away what we have made our God so that he remains our God. Let me say this, there is a world of iniquity in us. We live in the world, but there is a world of iniquity in my heart and your heart today. And we'll only be freed from it when we leave this world. Pride is a terrible thing. And God hates to see it in his children. It is completely incompatible for somebody to be a Christian and to be proud. Paul said, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross, Jesus Christ my Lord. Jesus said, when you have done all the things that you are commanded to do, Luke 17.10, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. Christian let us be very careful of how we speak of our attainments. Let us be very careful. Glory in God alone. And so we have God's disapproval, verse 14 and following. Then came Isaiah the prophet unto King Hezekiah and said unto him, What did you say to these men? Well, of course, God knows. And he tells him, gives him the bad news. But in a sense, friends, it is good news. I don't know if we see that. God is working his purposes out. 
And sometimes he needs to take things from us. Who, who does the Lord chasten? Those who he loves. Those who he loves. We know all this took place in 586 BC when the Babylonians come in. Never would have thought. It's amazing. Sometimes you, people you think are your friends are not your friends. Your friends are those who know the truth and who know the, who know the God of truth who is too good to err, my friend. Too wise to err. Too good to be unkind. He can't err. He can't fail. Thank God. He is faithful to chasten us and to do us good. But as we notice these words, verse 19, I want you to notice the faithful submission to God's chastening. This is wonderful. Then said Hezekiah unto Isaiah, this is after all this pronouncement. Good is the word of the Lord, which thou hast spoken. That's faith, my friend. Good. The psalmist says, it is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I should not go astray. Good is the word of the Lord that he has spoken. And yet he said, is it not good if peace and truth be in my days? Yes, in my days. It's good. Merciful. I don't deserve it. But it humbled him, didn't it? As he looked at his sons. As David would have to look at his sons. That would humble David. The future would humble Hezekiah. And all that God has chastened him with will keep him in check. Let me just close with this. Hezekiah fell, as all of us do. But Christ never fell. Never. Hezekiah is a wonderful, in a, in a way, a type. But the types always fall short, don't they? The Lord Jesus never, never failed. He humbled himself, was obedient all the time. He was without sin, holy, harmless, undefiled. And it's because Christ never failed. He is able to present us faultless before his throne with exceeding joy. Why? Because he earned for us a righteousness, my friend that we lost in Adam. We certainly haven't had a perfect life. But he didn't fail because he would eventually have to go to the cross as the substitute for his people. If he had one sin, if he had any pride in his heart, he could never be my savior. And he could never be your savior. But that's who we look to. All fullness is in Christ. And that's who we must trust in. Amen.